following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. It comes from a series that I've done elsewhere on Jesus and the temple. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But many of the stories that occur in the Gospels actually occur in what would we would call the second temple or Herod's temple on that great mount in Jerusalem, the city of David. And the story of the widow's might, the woman caught in adultery, the feast of dedication. Many of the times when Jesus is there and he's contesting with other religious leaders, it's all taking place at the most important central geographical area for the Jews 2,000 years ago, right in Jerusalem, this magnificent edifice known as Herod's Temple. And when I was looking at this, I thought to myself, when was the first time Jesus appeared in the temple? When was this? It was an occasion in which he never, he didn't walk himself onto the temple. He didn't run onto the temple. He was actually carried onto the temple. In a way, he went without his own volition. He was at the mercy of others. They were, of course, his parents. And he was a 40-day-old infant. We pick up the story in Luke's Gospel, the second chapter, the 22nd verse, which you can see here, the key verses, but I want to read it in a little bit of context. Think about this. Jesus is being carried. He is an infant, 40 days old, in the hands of Mary, and there with his adoptive father, Joseph. Now, when the days of her, talking about Mary's purification according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. In other words, the Messiah. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for mine eyes have seen your salvation. Mine eyes have seen your salvation. That little baby he held in the crook of his arms was none other than the Messiah, the Son of God. And he said, I can depart this world content with having seen him. But this place they were gathered in, if you can see from this text, is called simply the temple. The temple was associated with one man who most of the Jews disliked, except for this one thing. 
He had won many of them over by the creation of this magnificent temple in which the sacrifices as laid out in the book of Leviticus could be carried out by the priests for the sins of the people in the nation of Israel. Jesus at this point is 40 days old. He was carried there by his parents. Think about Joseph and Mary. You know, in this moment in time, with this 40-day-old infant, I want you to realize something. Jesus was nothing. He was nothing in the eyes of the people that beheld him. Most people probably never even gave him a second glance in the hands of his parents. Jesus was nothing, and Herod was everything. Jesus had been conceived outside of wedlock. He came from a family that seemed to have no prominence whatsoever. He'd been born in a stables. He'd been laid in a manger. He'd been wrapped in rags. And he came from an insignificant, know-nothing town. Herod, however, had been born of nobility. Herod was aristocracy. Herod had wealth. Herod commanded armies. Herod was known as Herod the Great. He was so highly thought of by the authorities in Rome that they gave him this title at the age of 33. They called him the King of the Jews. At 33 years of age, he was known as the king of the Jews. Jesus was nothing. Herod was everything. He was also known as being the greatest builder of his age. He ruled for 40 years. That's four decades in a very violent world in which you could get three or four emperors almost in a year. Herod ruled for four decades. And over that time, he became the greatest builder in the Mediterranean of his generation. One historian said this about Herod the Great. He said, No one in Herod's period built so extensively with projects that shed such a bright light on that world. The temple was just one of the many things that this man built. We're going to have a quick look, a guided tour of some of these great buildings. Among them were, were, was the great conical hill upon which he built a fortress, Herodotum. His mausoleum was built at the foot of this. You can see what remains of it today. It gives you some idea of what he did over these 40 years. We don't have a picture of this, but he also built a magnificent Paris, Paris, <laughs> palace in Jerusalem itself, which was filled with wondrous innovations. He also liked to look over and have a great vantage point. Well, many of us would like a house like this, wouldn't we? The next house we're going to look at is a palace he built at Masada that was overlooking the great expanse of the Judean desert. Gorgeous, gorgeous summer house. One of the marvels of the ancient world was the creation of a city. You say, come on, Adam. You're telling me this man created a city? Oh, yes. 
from nothing. It's called Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea. You can see pictures of it here. It was a town and port that Herod built over a 12-year period. In the town, he built a theater that seated 3,500. You can see it almost, you can just make it out in the bottom of the central picture, which is this great view of the archaeological site that is there today that you can visit. His own palace he built on this promontory or this neck of land that is stretching out into the Mediterranean head right at the bottom. It was a great palace in which he had an infinity pool. I mean, we all love an infinity pool. Don't you think it's one of those things in the Western world you aspire to? A house that overlooks maybe the bay somewhere along the North Shore here, if you're so fortunate like me living on the Whangaparoa. I shouldn't have said that because I really don't want you to come live there. Um, <laughs> we're trying to keep people away from the best-kept secret in Auckland. But you can just imagine this looking out over towards Oriwa and the sparkling lights, and you're sitting in the, in the infinity pool that seems to go on for infinity because it's got no end to it, and I'm just relaxing. You guys could come and visit periodically. Uh, but I don't have one of those, but I would really like one. But Herod got one. The thing about it was it was almost the size of a modern Olympic pool. It was big. And it had fresh water. Now, this is interesting because there's not a scrap of fresh water in the site. This is going to be a problem because Caesarea Maritima became the largest city in the province of Judea. Incredible when you think about it. It had a population of 125,000 people. To put that in context, Jerusalem ran roughly between 50 to 60,000 people. So it was a city created over 12 years that grew to 125,000 people, but it had not a drop of fresh water to get round of it, round this so he could hydrate his populace and to fill his infinity pool. He had this aqueduct you can see the remains of on the left-hand side of the slide, which ran 10 miles from Mount Carmel. Everything is laid on. But that wasn't the best of it. The most magnificent part of this construction was the establishment of a port in an area of coastline in which there were no attributes for a port. What they did was they created these two breakwaters, massive breakwaters. You can see the remnant of one about halfway up that central slide, and then an artist's um, reconstruction of it with its magnificent lighthouse at the end of one arm. And what they did was, is they got lime and volcanic ash and fill, and they combined it together into what is known in the ancient world, and we know today as an early form of concrete. And these vast arms embraced an area around 100,000 square meters of the Mediterranean. It was the largest artificial port of his day, rivaling that created by Cleopatra in Alexandria. And the only reason I add that in there is because some of you were thinking to yourself, I bet it's not as good as Cleopatra's in Alexandria. You might be wrong. It was amazing. You see, people looked up to Herod. Even if you really didn't like him, you could admire him. He was everything. Jesus, a 40-day-old child, was nothing. But this brings us, of course, to the temple. 
It is the building which made his name and for which he was always and ever has been associated with. In the 18th year of his reign, he began the rebuilding of the temple, really a renovation of it. It would be his most famous work. It had two parts. The first was the temple complex itself, and the other was a huge platform which it was based upon. Of course, the first temple was created by Solomon. You can see an artist's representation of what it probably looked like around 950 BC in the city of David. This temple, unfortunately, was destroyed some 400 years after it was made by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. When Zerubbabel returned, which sounds like a character from Fred Flintstones, doesn't it? It really does, Zerubbabel. When When this gentleman returned with some of the exiles, there's no point digging a hole deeper for yourself, is there? When he returned, he decided to reconstruct it, and it was nowhere near as ornate. It was functional. It did what you wanted. But it really didn't resemble anything like Solomon's temple. So what Herod did is he began a massive renovation project of the temple and the platform upon which it was made. The result was this next structure, which is the central part of the temple complex. It's got the holy place and the holy of holies. You can see how much bigger it is. On the steps, what looks like an ant is actually a human being, to give you some indication of how large just this part of his renovation was. It required 10,000 workers, of which 1,000 were Levitical priests. Now, you're saying, hold on here, Adam. How do these Levitical priests end up being builders and masons? Well, so they could continue the sacrificial system over the period it would take for the temple to be made, he actually had these Levitical priests, a thousand of them, trained for purpose. So not only did he bring all these other workers in, on top of that, you weren't allowed to have great noise around the temple. So what they did was they quarried the stones They cut the stones to purpose so they would not have to be cut on site after they had been transported to the temple mount. And they were numbered so they would interlock and fit exactly in the right spot. An incredible construction feat. Regular services were able to continue because of this terrific organization. And when it was finished, oh my, oh my. We take tall buildings and large buildings for granted today. They're kind of dime a dozen. But if you think even just in the medieval period, think about, has anyone been to Cologne or seen pictures of the great church at Cologne? That was like the tallest building in Europe for hundreds of years. The Eiffel Tower made much later, was, one, was the tallest thing in Paris for so long. This is 2,000 years ago. Very tall, large. People had never seen the like of this in this part of the world. It glistened. It was made out of a white stone that was glorious. It was so glorious that the rabbis, many of them who did not like Herod, this is what they said. He who has not seen 
Herod's temple, has not seen beauty. He who has not seen Herod's temple has not seen beauty. As you made your way to Jerusalem through the province of Judea, you would catch the sight of this glistening building. It was awe-inspiring, breathtaking. And as he did this, he increased the size of the platform that it sat upon. He doubled it. We have a picture of this here, and you have a, a little bit of a picture of the temple complex, perhaps in your hands. But look at this. The temple looked big, but look how large the platform is. He at least doubled the size of it. He did this by having engineers dig a big trench around the mountain itself, into which they took the biggest of the stones that were cut from the quarry, and they laid them down in the foundation. And then they put other stones that they had cut from the quarry on top of it. Many of these stones were a hundred tons. I drive in the sand march on occasion. It may weigh a ton when it's wet. Think of a hundred Nissan marches piled one on top of each other. And you start to get an idea of how large they were. Many of them were 30 tons, 100 tons. The biggest stone you can see here is found on the western wall. It's known simply as the western stone. It's 13.6 meters in length, and it weighs, according to the experts, around, catch this, 600 tons. That's 600 of my Nissan marches piled up to the heavens. Historians say that this may be the largest object ever moved in the pre-powered mechanical age. 600 tons moved from a quarry and set perfectly in place in this temple. This great platform, it was then filled in and leveled off, as you can see here. It was the size of about 24 football fields, 145 acres. It was the largest man-made platform in the ancient world. Let's have a look at how it looks today. It gives you some idea of this. Some of you have been there. Some of you have perhaps even walked on there little realizing how much work was involved, who was behind it all. The main structure was completed in 10 years, but the task was so big it was not completed until 64 AD, just before the whole thing, the temple was destroyed. The Jewish historian Josephus, who saw the temple, said that to approaching visitors, the temple appeared to be a mountain of snow, glistening in the sunlight. A mountain of snow glistening in the sunlight. If you and I had been there at that moment that Joseph, Mary, Jesus, Simeon, and Anna had been gathered together when Jesus was only 40 days old, in the great crowd, and what is known as probably the court of the woman is where they met, 
a place that could accommodate about 6,000 people. Do you think you would have noticed a 40-day-old child? Or would you have been totally caught in the magnificence, the glory, the beauty of a mountain of snow glistening in the sunlight? The glory and the magnificence of Herod's temple would have demanded your attention and your admiration. And yet, history tells us that it was this baby that was to shape history more than Herod. The moment Herod died, his influence vanished. His name slowly started to recede in history. So much so that now, in the year 2017, for those people who have even heard of Herod, he is but a mere footnote in history, a bit player in the story of Jesus of Nazareth, a character who is fleeting, that comes and goes from the stage, and you would barely even knew he had been there. Why? Because the magnificence and glory of Jesus is so much greater 2,000 years past. What has happened? Jesus became the fulcrum of time. All dates in history are now cast, either set before he was born or after he was born. The architectural achievements of Herod, many of them have turned to rubble and to dust and become sites of curiosity for visitors to visit. The big question of all of this is, how is it that Jesus became so influential and Herod the Great became Herod the so diminished? The footnote in history. I believe it's because Herod, when he built, he built with bloodless, lifeless, inert stones. Bloodless, lifeless, inert, inanimate stones. But Jesus built a kingdom and a church out of animate, living, blood-filled stones, you and I, human beings. First Peter tells us, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones, also being built up a spiritual house. That's you, a holy priesthood. That's you to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. How did he do this? He overturned an old spiritual order, he overturned a sinful world. He did it by teaching a revolutionary message that transformed people's lives for 2,000 years and continues to do it today. I'll only do this by, I'll only illustrate this by looking at one aspect of Jesus' teaching. It's the area of forgiveness. In the world that Jesus was born into and entered this temple when he was only 40 days old, it was a world full of vengeance and violence in which revenge was considered 
honorable by some people and even desirable. To realize this, we only have to look at Herod himself and his own life. Herod ruled for 40 years, ladies and gentlemen, and it wasn't because he was giving out chocolate fishes to people and patting them on the head and telling them how much he loved them and by being softly, softly, nicely, nicely. He did it in a brutal way. He was absolutely ruthless. He had around 11 wives. I say around because some of them went missing and we're not quite sure how many there were, but around 11 wives. The only wife who truly loved him, he murdered. He executed a mother-in-law, two brothers-in-laws, and had one of his own sons killed. And when his barber said to him that he should perhaps be merciful to his son, Herod promptly had his barber executed. His ruthlessness and his brutality towards his own family and the killing of his son was even known as far away as as the center of the Roman Empire. Julius Caesar said of Herod the Great, knowing that he was a Jew and therefore could not eat pork, Caesar said this. He said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Before his death, he had a vast selection of the wealthy of Jerusalem arrested. When he knew he was going to die, they arrested all these prominent people in the city of Jerusalem so that upon his death, they would be executed so that there would be a great mourning at the loss of his life because of the death of their family members. How sick is that? To ensure that people wouldn't be celebrating and happy that Herod had gone. He would have all these other people killed so a great mourning and wake would take place. When Joseph and Mary took Jesus home, of course, three wise men visited with Herod, and they talked of somebody who would be the king of the Jews. And if you know what happens, Herod is not above killing other children. Jesus broke with this. This 40-day-old child would grow up and begin his ministry at around the age of 30, He would teach a message that would revolutionize ideas around vengeance, hatred, retribution. This is what he had to say in a teaching that was totally contrary to the way the people of the ancient world thought. In Matthew's Gospel, the fifth chapter, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. My friends, this is not only contrary to the ancient world, it's contrary to your nature, It's contrary to my nature. Jesus is coming up here with something here that is something you would never come up with yourself. Why? Because it's not part of your nature. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Wow. Revolutionary teaching on forgiveness. I started today off with this story. Set in this church in the United States of America, and these 
two people invited to the front. That Mary, at 50 years of age, struck with arthritis, who had lost her son in 1993, was being assisted to the front of the church by O'Shea, the man who had murdered her son. After her son had died, she tried to do the Christian thing. She had tried to forgive this man for what he had done, but time revealed that it was not possible for her. Inside, bitterness consumed her like a disease. The church couldn't help her very much. She obviously talked so much to the pastor about it, he eventually one day said to her that her son had been killed because she had and died because she had not prayed enough. It's incredible when you think about it. Others told her that she should just move on and forget it. It was 12 years after the loss of her son and the imprisonment of O'Shea that she took matters into her own hands and tried to contact him in the prison. She wanted to speak to him. She wanted to meet with him. Her friends told her, this is crazy. Don't do this. That young man that killed your son has been in prison for 12 years. He will now be a hardened criminal. He will be even more difficult to deal with. Why are you doing this? He will be hardened by prison life. She tried. He refused. Nine months passed. She tried again, and O'Shea agreed. The first conversation went like this from Mary. I don't know you. You don't know me. Let's start there. They talked for hours. O'Shea, at the end of this first meeting, asked her for a hug. Even after 12 years in prison, with some very desperate criminals, he said this when he recalled the moment later. He said, when I asked her for that hug, it was the scariest moment of my life. This was the beginning of a bond that would grow with time as she heard and learnt his side of the story about the death of her son. And he learnt what she had lost when he had taken the life of her son. When he was released from prison, Mary threw him a party and she invited him to live next door to her, right next door. Sometimes, O'Shea says, when I'm down, discouraged, when things aren't working, I look into Mary's face and I say, hey, she gave me another chance. I need to give myself another chance. What's he saying? She forgave me. Where did this forgiveness come from for this terrible crime? It came from a transformative, life-changing teaching. It came from Jesus. Who's greater or what's greater? Building a palace on a hillside or freeing someone from the crippling effects of unforgiveness. 
On this day, 30 July 2017, nobody, nowhere, no how, is meeting to celebrate and worship the life of Herod. But on 30 July 2017, over the next 24 hours, hundreds of millions of Christians around the world will be gathering to celebrate and worship the one who cut them out of a quarry of sin, cleaned them up, transformed their lives, and still working on us, and set them as living stones in his eternal house. Lord, we thank you that we were just part of this hillside, rough-worn, messed up, burdened with unforgiveness, with sin. There was no hope for us. But you're the master builder. We thank you that we have the unparalleled privilege to be members of your great house. Thank you for selecting us as living stones. We love you, Lord. You are too good to us. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.